I'm Brent Leary. I'm Paul Greenberg. We are the CRM players, and I know you may think I'm Eric Dickerson, but I really am not. I wish I what? Was, well, you see what I'm all wearing. these years, and you, I can't <laughs> believe this. It is what it is. Hmm. All right, so we're still at seat in Daytona, still hanging out at the uh, racetrack. There's really cool stuff going on here. Yeah, well, this has been. Look, I'm not a NASCAR fan whatsoever. I'm not a Formula One fan. I'm not an anything fan when it comes to cars. However, this is an amazing venue, right? It's like, even as little as I care about cars whatsoever, even watching them move around the track at the speeds they're moving and on the angles they're moving is astonishing. And the venue itself is just like great. But what if I told you that Mickey Mantle was once a NASCAR fan? Well, that's... He also drank. All right, we're moving on. <laughs> All right, so uh, there are two special guests that we have with us today, and you're going to hear a lot about what they're doing, not just from us right now, but in the future. So we're here to talk with David West, Ricky Volante, about the Historical Basketball League. Ricky is co-founder and CEO. David is the COO, right? I always want to go back to your pl your playing days. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> all right. First of all, thanks for joining us, guys. Yeah, thanks for, thanks having, for us. having us. All right. So I had the uh, pleasure, actually, of moderating a panel with you guys yesterday to talk about the historical basketball league and kind of the disruptive model that you guys are putting together. So before we jump into that, uh, give us a little of your personal background. I'll start with you, Ricky. I'll try to do a better job than I did yesterday, too. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, I was a college athlete once upon a time that created part of my passion for, for what we're doing with EHBL. Uh, from there, went to law school, uh, became an attorney. My practice is predominantly focused on issues related to sports, film, and music, working within uh, with clientele and, and companies within those areas, in particular with professional athletes, uh, which kind of created the other side of my passion that's involved with, with EHBL. Uh, so. And I'm David West. Had a 15-year MBA career, uh, went to school and uh, graduated from Xavier University in Ohio. Um, you know, I played uh, for four teams in the NBA, won a couple championships. It was a good run. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's so modest about it. Yeah, it was a good run. Yeah. It was a good run. Um, and so, you know, part of the HBL now, um, looking to do things uh, post-retirement or post-playing days that uh, uh, with great impact. All right. So, Historical Basketball League, you got to tell us what it's all about, and you also got to tell us about the name, too. Yeah, so I guess we'll, we'll start with uh, what it's about. We're trying to become the, the primary destination for elite college basketball players across the globe, uh, competing directly with the NCAA, and then to, to some extent also with organizations like the NBL and the G League. Um, but we're trying to become that 18 to 23-year-olds um, that are the best in the world at what they do in terms of college basketball. We want them to be playing in our league. Um, yeah, if you want to. Yeah, we're, again, a lot of what Ricky said, we're, we were aiming to become the premier destination for, for college basketball athletes to start. Um, we want to uh, create an environment that is centered around them and uh, give them options and opportunities that benefit them more than um, the universities. Yeah, I have a question that's actually not. Do you? I actually meant to ask you this yesterday, but do you, 
do you have time for your actual law practice doing this? <laughs> uh, I had to phase it down quite a bit. I've kept a select few clients uh, that I still work with every now and then, but uh, for the most part, the, the legal practice is on hold. <laughs> I figured that. Uh, but I still get to do, you know, I'm, we, we do not have an in-house counsel right now or general counsel. Um, so I do the, the bulk of our legal work, so I'm by no means letting my skills go right. um, doing all the, the contract drafting and, and uh, legal analysis for, for the structure and, and agreements with partners and things like that. Uh, but to circle back, because I don't want to miss your second question, that's always a trick if you ask two questions. The second one doesn't <laughs> get answered. Um, the name itself. So in 1929, the Carnegie Foundation uh, had a, a commission that was similar to what Condoleezza Rice recently did with the NCAA. Um, and what they were trying to do was determine whether or not universities were providing anything beyond a scholarship to their, to their college athletes. And so they, they surveyed 121 universities and found that 84 of them were outright paying players. You know, when you think back to that point of time, like Harvard was a football powerhouse. Why? Harvard paid more than everybody else. <laughs> um, and nothing more than that. I mean, Harvard was one of the first super stadiums within college football. They sort of you know, redeveloped them and, and the University of Pennsylvania um, pretty much changed the entire landscape of college football, building the first 30 and 40 and 50,000 seat stadiums back in the, the beginning of the 20th century. And again, that's because they were paying more than the other universities. It wasn't because of the, the Ivy League, you know, it was about uh, cash. Right? I, I'm <laughs> sure that there are Ivy Leaguers that'll tell you that, that it was because of the education. It was not, it was because they were paying the most. Wow, all right, that's, that's really interesting. So let's talk about why you guys started to do this. Why, what was the reason that you just wanted to come out and pretty much try to disrupt what the NCAA is all about? Yeah, I think, um, you know, first of all, it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, when I was looking at the, at the layout of the league and the concepts behind it and what uh, the intent was, um, you know, it's just the right thing to do. Um, there's career opportunities um, that exist uh, uh, off the backs of the labor of these young athletes, and they are the, 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 the people that have the fewest opportunities, the fewest career choices, particularly while they're in school. Uh, so the model that we have um, is just the right model to present uh, to the market at this time. What, uh, what, so fill us in a little more on the actual model, like what you're actually going to do with these athletes and what your plan is for you too. Yeah, so uh, to start with, we're, we're a single entity, so we're going to have eight teams. The cities that those teams are going to be located in, going north to south, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Richmond and Norfolk, Virginia, Raleigh and Charlotte, North Carolina, and Atlanta. Why that? Because uh, so Atlanta's great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, aside from Atlanta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, you know, Atlanta was a critical one for us, but, you know, overall, if you break down those markets, uh, Atlanta, Philadelphia, and D.C. are three of the top 10 markets in the U.S. Uh, when you throw in Baltimore and Charlotte, you've got five of the top 21 markets in the U.S. And then uh, Richmond, Norfolk, and Raleigh, where a lot of people might scratch their heads and say, you know, how can you throw those in with the others? Um, they ranked as, as three of the top eight markets in terms of NBA viewership. Okay. And so uh, Norfolk was number one. Uh, Raleigh was number seven. And Richmond was number eight. I, I would have uh, never no. guessed that. Yeah. I, I, I still don't understand that. It's kind of the base. <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, the you have one. You've got so many players, and that's again part yeah. of part of why that's where we want to be is the the sheer density of players that have come from those areas. Um, but just the basketball interest as well. You know, it's the East Coast. Uh, you know, Philly has a strong basketball history. Baltimore has a strong basketball history. Atlanta has a strong basketball history. They don't identify as much with football, um, at least in the college space. You get more into the deep south, and that's where you're going to have yeah, the football teams. SEC country in Atlanta. Uh, football, yeah. yeah, so so for us, um, you know, culturally we wanted to align where basketball is popular, the DMV area and the Research Triangle in Raleigh-Durham. Um, you're talking about, I mean, it's like running through like 2024, the class of 2024 in terms of seniors in high school and what year they graduate. Um, the I think it's like 50 plus percent of every single upcoming recruiting class is from those two areas. No, really? Um, so it's, and wow. in the AAU circuit, you can talk more about that part. There's just so many good teams from those yeah. areas. Yeah, so we just, you know, we just feel strategically we need to be where the, where the talent is and um, at Mid-Atlantic areas where the bulk of the talent is. Um, and it's, it's been like that. We also understand that you know, uh, athletes tend to go east rather than west, mm. and um, the international athletes and in, in our neighbors to the north in Canada tend to come um, down into the, the mid-Atlantic to play as well. So we felt like we needed to be where, uh, uh, in markets obviously that love basketball, love sport, but then also were uh, easily accessible for these for these athletes. So, what what becomes the the value to the athlete? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, for the athletes, first and foremost, you know, we're going to be providing them with, with salaries, um, salaries of fifty dollars to $150,000 per season. Um, beyond that, we're also providing them with five-year guaranteed scholarships, which can be completed on a non-continuous basis, or non, uh, on a continuous basis. Mm -hmm. So if they go to the NBA, they can come back and complete it at a later date. Um, in addition to wow. that, there are not uh, restrictions on name, image, and likeness, so they can sign endorsement deals, they can have agents, they can have financial planners, they can have attorneys, you know, all the things that in some way, shape, or form is either impermissible or severely restricted by the NCAA. Um, you know, we felt like uh, taking a focus on having it as player-centric as possible uh, would allow us to bring in, a, a, maybe not all, but a good percentage of the elite basketball players uh, in the U.S. And, and globally. And then from there, you know, your revenue streams, going back to your question about the business side, you know, people are going to tune in and watch. Yep. Uh, companies are going to want to, going to want to be associated with these athletes. Um, another thing that happens within college is you kind of have this inefficient relationship between sponsors and the players, because the sponsorship deals can't be directly with the players. They have to be with the university. Which means you have to work through the athletic department, which means the players get nothing out of it. So uh, the you know the athletic department is kind of playing middleman. The athletic department forces the athletes to participate. They're getting nothing out of it. So you know, do you really get the bang for your buck? I mean, is anybody? I forget the car dealership now, but is anybody really buying more cars because Roy Williams was in a car commercial for UNC? Because <laughs> they couldn't have Maybe Colby Roy White. And his family, I don't uh, yeah, because right. they couldn't have Colby White or Nasir Little, you right. know, or some of these guys that that were with the team last year. You know, that would be who what would actually impact consumer behavior, not Roy Williams pulling up in a car, and I think it was Chevrolet pulling up in a Chevy. Right. <laughs> what I like about the model is people are getting salaries, they're getting paid but they're also getting scholarships. Yeah. So instead of having to be tied to the university who's under the NCAA rules, which restricts 
the kind of money they can make. Mm -hmm. Now you're basically allowing these, these athletes to get a salary, find the college of their choice, and you give them scholarship money for them to go to that. And they get the opportunity to build their own brand and actually make money off of their own brand as opposed to the NCAA making money off of their brand. Right, right, right. And in and, and the most simplified form is it's just like you have a student who has a summer job. <laughs> Right, so these guys' job is in the summer. Their job just happens to be basketball. In the fall, winter, and spring, there are students where they are developing and training um, and in an academic uh, pursuit that fits their needs um, and is best going to serve them as they uh, look forward to their professional futures. Uh, I made like a dollar and a quarter an hour of doing this <laughs> job, minimum wage at a time, cleaning mailbags. Of course, I have no talent either, so <laughs> <laughs> that might be the reason. I mean, but that, that's, it's, it's a great analogy yeah. in a lot of ways, and when you think about it, like CS majors, uh, you know, Google has a program that pays a CS major, if you get into it, $100,000 for the summer. None of us would ever mm -hmm. think. For the summer? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I need to. Career change. Right. Okay, awesome. sorry, we're, we're done with the show. We have yeah. to go fill out a job application. You know, so, so none of us would in our craziest minds think, you know, that makes that student's um, academic experience less meaningful because they're getting paid while they're in college. All of us are like, no, that's, that's exactly what you should be doing. Right. <laughs> you know, if you develop an app, you know, if, if Google itself, you know, was developed out of a Stanford course once upon a time, um, you know, the, it's not like Stanford has 100% ownership of that as a result of the fact that it was developed in a Stanford class. So, you know, there's those types of things that, again, it, it would be insane for us to say that Stanford should have had 100% ownership rights of Google. But if a Stanford athlete is playing for Stanford, mm. they pretty much do. <laughs> so, in your mind, this is actually, question that I, I don't, don't think anyone actually has asked now I think of it but uh, so if I remember and I may be wrong about this one of your criteria was this, they have to be a college student mm -hmm. now let's say they're incredibly talented not college student and when I say not college I'm deliberately not saying high school because uh, you know what if you remember years ago huge amount of street talent in New York for mm -hmm. example right on the courts there and a lot of you know well-known the rock come at it right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. exactly. so what about those kids yeah so that's why we aren't going to try to fit uh, a square peg into a circular hole we're going to work with those kids and their families and our academic uh, advisors um, and our nonprofit to find an education that suits their wow. needs so awesome. we're, we're not gonna say okay you've got to go to this university no, we're going to say, you know, we'll identify the kids. We know the kids that don't fit the traditional classroom model, but we can put them in a trade school. Um, and you'll can, work with to get them into the trade school? Yeah, we're going to work wow. to get them into, each one of our student athletes are going to have an educational track that they're on. Wow. And no, no sing, I guess no singular uh, athlete will have like the, you know, there won't be a, a cookie cutter sort That's of uh, awesome. look at it you know we're going to be very nimble with it we're going to make sure that it suits the needs of that 
that athlete. And we're going to utilize the community college network, uh, local college, smaller universities, online uh, curriculums, like we said, vocational and trade schools if we have to, but we're going to find some sort of education that fits each one of our our athletes. Yes. Yeah, both, both of us went to small schools. I mean, my average class size was between like 12 and 15. I think Seriously. we've talked yeah. about yours was similar. Yeah. And I know for me personally, that was a huge benefit in my personal development. You know, rather than being dropped onto whatever major university you want to pick, and you're in a class of 100 where you can kind of float in and out and not be held responsible right. for your for yeah. your academic side of things, whereas you there was a standard, there was sort of a, an establishment of responsibility. Um, and, and that's part of what we want to do is instill upon these guys what they can do on and off the court and how everything off the court impacts what they do on the court as well. You know, so financial literacy, public speaking, media training, selecting and vetting agents, all these things that whether you like it or not, it's going to impact how successful you are mm -hmm. as an athlete. But you were saying you don't get that from college, you, right. you, you you talk to a lot of you know, young talent, mm -hmm. and if things don't go the way they expect them to go, right. they're like lost. Yeah, so most athletes today are in um, educational uh, tracks that meet the needs of their athletic uh, requirements, right? So your schedule, your schooling, your major, you know, your class schedule is all built around your, to make you most available for athletics. Um, so, you know, there's very little space or room um, for the guys who, um, you know, want to pursue certain academic tracks. Um, if it interferes with your sport, then that's something that's off the table, right? Because you go to that school as an athlete first, particularly the scholarship athletes. And that's one of the one of the, the narratives we want to we want to change and we want to fight right. We, you know, players have the right um, if they want to commit themselves to the sport. Sports are a global phenomenon and a massive massive opportunities. Not just at the player level, but the whole range of athletics uh, can be available to these guys. So for us, it's most important, like I said, to put them in tracks that you know, fit what they want to do and fit what, you know, we ask them, what is your idea? What are you going to do after sport? You know, what are you going to do while you're in sport? Because as a professional, a former professional now, um, the conversation is for us is once you become a pro, you can't wait to figure out your next step when the, when the basketball is done. So you've got to start figuring out your next steps while you're in your career. Um, and that's relatively new. Uh, for professional athletes because you know we were we were trained and brought up to put all of our eggs in this basket mm -hmm. and um, for this younger generation this new uh, this future uh, athlete they have all types of interests and they have all types of ideas and, and things that they want to pursue um, such as uh, be it being media mavens I mean these guys are talented they have other you know, things that, that pique their interest in. You know, basketball is still their centerpiece, but they don't uh, buy into the idea that they've got to deny these other aspects of themselves and not build these other aspects of themselves just to play the sport. We talked about this yesterday, actually, and that's part of how we want to reshape how people view college athletes to start with, but athletes overall, is they aren't just athletes. A lot right. of people only think of it in that term, right. that, you know, an athlete is an athlete. 
they're not. <laughs> they, they have huge, significant platforms. They have significant influence. And we want to be able to, again, start to shape that a little earlier so that mm -hmm. these guys understand going into the NBA, this is what I can accomplish, not just on the court, but off the court, to have a more profound success on my community where I came from, for my family, all those types of things, because a lot of these guys come from you know, low socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and that's part of the stress that is associated with the current system is that these guys have to go a year unpaid. Um, and, and again, they come from families that live below the poverty line. Um, you know, they've got people that, that are counting on them to make it. Yeah, and, I, and, and you know, to his point, there are, you know, in the last few years, parents, um, there have been some parents who have been outspoken about the fact that, you know, they know that they're committing their child into a yeah. system that's going to exploit them, and they've been very vocal about it. Um, so, you know, the winds are changing. Um, you know, people, I think, are, are aware now of the level of imbalance that uh, currently exists in the system. Uh, and so we're looking to be another option for folks. Well, you're actually, you know, one thing that occurs to me on a slightly different level is you're actually helping these young people, and they are, one other thing that's incontrovertible about them is they're young. Right, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, and they still have a ways to go to be mature, too. But you're actually helping them find their life. You're not giving them their life. That's up to them. Right. But you're helping them find their life, right? And right. that's really a, I mean, that's huge, actually. Because, I mean, look, you know, one of the other reasons that, to your point of athletes being seen as athletes, is because a number of them are excessive and they aren't that mature, really. Right. And, and comes across. Unfortunately, they're the ones who get the press a lot. Right. Where the ones who are, well, like, when uh, one of the things I was <laughs> talking about actually with you yesterday is one of the reasons that I always really liked you even though you were on the Pelicans right? but I was a and I'm a Knicks fan but it wasn't just that you were like a tenacious player I, look you, you are and you were and you were an all-star and you did all these great things on the court but every time I'd watch you interviewed and that really like kept striking me that you were grounded you were articulate you were mature you were thoughtful and you were kind and that comes that came across in public oh, to people, right? And but that's your kind of role model. I hate to put it, you know, right. all that pressure on you, but I just did. Just good luck, good luck to all with all that. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but really, that's if let's say there were lots more of you, people might have actually a different view. So what right. you're helping to do is guide them. To more being more again, putting all the pressure on you, but to be more like you. And I know that's not how you're thinking of it. Right. Believe me, that's how I'm thinking of it. Um, <laughs> but but that is true. And you know that that's really important for young people. Period. Right. So whether they're athletes or not, right? right? And and that actually also gets to what you're talking about with the diverse interests. But it's also how to handle them. Mm -hmm. And you're teaching mm -hmm. that with your advisors and your uh, I'm, your coaches and all the other right. people you're going to be bringing in. Absolutely. All right. This has been great, but I got to throw one thing out all there. Right. I mean, you are going up against the NCAA and all the power and money they have. So what are the things that keep you up at night the most? What are the biggest challenges that you foresee with battling, you know, a behemoth? Look at yeah. that, they're both um, sides. Yeah, they came this way, that was pretty hard. <laughs> wow. Good night's sleep. That was <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll start my answer by saying mountains are there to be climbed. Um, you know, so this absolutely is going to be a mountain. We, we aren't shying away from that. It is, they were formed in 1906. 
Uh, college sports generates about $13 billion a year. Mm. Um, the financial power and, and economic power that they can wield is significant. Um, and, it, and it's not just the NCAA. A lot of people think about it in just those terms. You know, there's a lot of institutions and corporations and, and donors and alums and universities out there that all benefit from the system, from the status quo, remaining as it is. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of people out there that if, if we're successful, their pockets are going to get a little lighter. Um, so for us, it's about maneuvering and finding the right groups that want to be associated with us and work with us. So like taking distribution as an example, um, looking at purely digital companies that don't have long-standing relationships with the NCA or, or conferences. Um, and there's a lot of them out there, you know, pe that people don't even realize. Um, Facebook Watch, Amazon Prime, Twitch, Flow Sports, Eleven Sports, Caffeine, Stadium, and I'm sure I'm missing a whole bunch. Um, so by no means, you know, once upon a time when when leagues were trying to compete against, you know, whether it was the NFL or or the MLB or whatever, you know, you had four channels, sometimes two or three channels, and those were your only options to distribute. That's no longer a challenge today. We can get the product in front of people. Um, but it's about finding mission-aligned investors, going back to your, your original question now, um, <laughs> mission-aligned investors who understand what we're trying to accomplish as much on the court as off the court, um, people that are gonna understand that this is gonna take time to develop and develop the right way. Um, you know, what, what we launch with next June, you know, a decade from now is probably gonna look very, those two products are probably gonna look very different. Right. Um, but because we have a clean slate, because we don't have a century's worth of, of, of uh, policies and procedures that have always been in place that we have to follow. You know, we can tweak and go back and forth on different things to find out what the fans want, what's going to be supported, what the players want. Right. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, it's, it's all a challenge, but if it was easy, someone would have already done what we're doing. Mm. <laughs> point. I think I've got one question, one last question, okay. really. Um, so you guys, Brent interviewed you two yesterday, and you really impacted a lot of people at SEAT. You really did. And, and you impacted in terms of your, what you're thinking and how you're thinking, but you also impacted two other ways. One is that everyone knows the passion you both had for it. And, and again, we're talking about you're sort of quietly excited, and you seem to be more quiet excitement type too. And uh, you know, you're not jumping up and down, right? But, but everyone felt the passion. On the other hand, they also, you know where I'm going with this, don't you, <laughs> right? They also actually saw your relationship as amazing, how you interacted with each other, how you literally were finishing your centers. At one point, David, I remember you said, uh, I'll start and then Ricky will complete it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow, that's pretty good. And you know how I equated, man. I mean, this was like Renee Zellweger and Tom Cruise. And again, you guys pick which one you are, but, um, but, you should tell people how you met because, you know, it, it, it actually feels like you've known each other literally your entire lives. That's different. That's more like when ha uh, Harry met Sally. <laughs> <laughs> but when Ricky met David. <laughs> okay, and again, pick your favorite. <laughs> In the Tom Cruise example, I'm shorter, so I guess I get Tom Cruise. <laughs> um, uh, more seriously, uh, so it was, it was January 2018, you know, we had, we'd established the business plan, you know, we knew where we were going to go as a company, um, 
you know, my co-founder, who we haven't talked about at all yet, but Andy Schwartz, who's an economist. Um, he's five foot six. Uh, he's an economist <laughs> wow. through and through. I mean that in the in the most loving way, Andy. If you watch this, um, <laughs> that uh, he's a bit of a he looks like a nerd. I mean that's that's what so it you is. You call him short and a nerd. Hell of a loving way to put it. So, and you know, when you mad at him, I can't talk. Co collectively, <laughs> the two of us, when we would walk into a room to present to somebody, they'd go, "All right, that's a great idea. Who's your business? Who's your basketball person? Because <laughs> it doesn't look like either." You are the basketball person, um, and so you know we needed to answer that question, and and you know we went through a whole process of you know, former players, front office personnel, people from other sports that maybe had a passion about basketball and wanted to get involved that could sort of answer that question of all right, you have a great idea, but how do you actually get in front of the players? And so we sat down and we had a short list. And I'm not saying that just because we got him and because he's sitting here next to me, but David was the first name on our list. Um, we knew that there was a significant likelihood that he would retire in the near future, um, especially if the Warriors beat my Cavaliers again, um, <laughs> which happened. And then he retired. And, and Wow, you're actually partners in that. I didn't even realize that. I wasn't even thinking that. I mean, of course you're a Cavaliers fan. Well, but the funny part, so Andy's based in the Bay. I'm getting way off topic here. He's right. based in the Bay. When we started this idea was in 2015. Sure. The entire duration up until this past season Andy's a Warriors fan who lives in Oakland. I live in Cleveland. So we had a, wow. a friendly yeah. rivalry going on. That's why on. it took three years. <laughs> <laughs> we were very cordial in, in seasons one and two, but then in season three, once we both had one, once we both had one, it was not as cordial that year. Um, but uh, all that aside, you know, we, we connected with David and uh, through, through one of our advisors, who's a brother of one of his old teammates. and. Um, I don't know, at the moment we met, I, I will say it seemed like all the things that we had been told about him were immediately proven correct. And, you know, we were super excited to get him on board. Did the phrase, you complete me, come out? <laughs> <laughs> it, does, it will now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, it was um, I, a teammate, uh, probably one of the most intellectually stimulating teams I'd ever been on uh, so every day we were having like real conversations and so one day he's like uh, you know you need to talk to my brother you and my brother have a lot of similar interests so so I reached out to Luke we got in touch um, you know he told me he said you know uh, there's something coming you know I think you'll be perfect for it but just give it some time so we kept in contact over the next couple of years uh, and then, um, you know, we touched base one, one specific time about the story I told you guys earlier about the, the football player. That story came to me via him. And uh, when I retired, uh, he was immediately on my phone. Hey, man, I need you to meet these guys. I need you to talk to these guys. I think there's a perfect synergy here for you and sort of what you want to do. And um, we think you would be great. And so it took him a couple of weeks. We had a few conversations and then got on the phone with, with Ricky and immediately felt, you know, again, I'm all about impact and, you know, people aligning with, uh, with doing what's right. And, um, you know, it was really easy after that. You know, we figured out that, you know, obviously, you know, the challenge is going to be great. Uh, but, you know, you got to have the courage and the confidence to meet it head on. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, we sort of, go by that you know it has its ups and downs as a startup where we're pushing and we know we're fighting an uphill 
battle, but you know, mountains and hills, like Ricky said, are, were built to be climbed. So, and then he true. said, "You complete." <laughs> 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 uh, the, the first time he's we met, the first time we met in person, yeah. The first time we met in person, he had literally just found out that his wife was pregnant too. So wow. it was just he was about a half an hour late, which yeah. I had no issue with once particularly once he got there and he told me why yeah. so i mean it was just the circumstances under which we got connected and then got to meet it just yeah, uh awesome. it all kind of aligned and felt like it was kind of supposed to happen i gotta ask this one last yeah, question okay. and this is an nba question uh how hard was it to walk away from the game you know what it was probably it wasn't as hard as i i thought you know, when you, uh, you know, I played competitive basketball from the time I was five years old mm. and retired at 38. So, wow. It's the bulk you of my life. <laughs> um, you know, I, there, there, I don't remember, you know, summers without it, you know, winters without it. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the last few years of my career, you know, you start, you know, thinking about, you know, what haven't you done? And for me, it was when at the, at, at the very highest right. level, yep. and so um, you've been close. Yeah, right. We've been yeah. close, but winning was was the that sort was of the culmination. So once I got there, and then we did it again. Um, <laughs> you know, I just I said it was enough. You know, I thought 15 was my wife was trying to. She was pushing me toward 15 because she likes the number 15. <laughs> <laughs> I felt that 15 was a good solid number to, to, to end it to, on. To cap it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I actually started playing competitive basketball when I was five, but I retired when I was six. <laughs> there you go. Right. There it is. That's right. our basketball. <laughs> well, this has been really great. Where can people go to learn more about what you guys are doing? Yeah, so the website is hbleague.com. Uh, Twitter account is hb underscore league. And then the Instagram account is at hbleague.